We're going to be looking at Nehemiah 3, carrying on our series tonight. Um, it's a slightly unusual passage. Uh, maybe if you flick your eyes over it, you can see why, when I first found out I was preaching on this, I felt a little bit of trepidation. Um, it's just a list. I don't know about you, but when I'm reading the Old Testament, I find this kind of thing difficult. I forget that things like this have been included deliberately, that these are curated texts, and I, I, I forget that they're there for a purpose. I forget that, you know, 2 Timothy 3, we've got that all scripture is God-breathed. Even the bits which are so-and-so begat so-and-so. And all of it's useful. And so my eyes are tempted to skip past Nehemiah chapter 3, or at least to read it really quickly. Now, to fast forward to where the story picks up again, but I think there is meat in this passage, and not just for the historians. Now, I think it does reward our study. So, let's get stuck into it, and we need all the help we can get, so let me pray for us before we begin. Father God, please be with us tonight by your Spirit. Please give me the right manner, the right words to say. Pray that after my preparation, it would be entirely your power at work here tonight. Challenge our hearts and teach us. Show us things that we need to see. Amen. So what's happening in Nehemiah so far? Um, we looked at chapter 1 two weeks ago. Andy took us through that. And in chapter 1, we, we see Nehemiah receiving news of Jerusalem. And he hears about the Jewish remnant that has survived and returned there from exile. And as we see in, in his prayer in, in chapter 1 verse 9, their understanding is that they have been called back, gathered by the Lord, back to the place that he has chosen for his name to dwell. So after Israel rebelled and was exiled, they've been redeemed. And they've rebuilt their temple there. And the hope was perhaps that the Lord would be reforming the nation of Israel. That he would remake his people, that he'd replenish his blessing on them there. That the, the promises made to Abraham so long ago would be fulfilled. But in chapter 1, the news that Nehemiah receives is not great. It, it's that his people are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem have been broken down. The gates are burnt. It doesn't look so good. And that sent Nehemiah into, into mourning for his people. And that drove him into fasting and praying to the Lord. Last week, Dan took us through chapter 2, where we see the Lord answering Nehemiah's prayer in spades. And he, he moves the king, Artaxerxes, to send Nehemiah over to Jerusalem with funds and resources and troops and, amazingly, permission to rebuild the city walls. And so the book gets underway. The Lord, using Nehemiah and others, is going to rebuild and re-establish his city and, and perhaps, who knows, even renew the law and the covenant blessings of the people of Israel. And, and then here in chapter 3, we have a slightly odd bureaucrat's account of the beginning of the work. We'll, we'll read that in a moment. 
But as we do, the core question I, I want to deal with tonight is this. What does it look like when God is building his kingdom? And when he re-establishes his people? So bear that in mind as we read through the passage. And as I said before, if, if you need something else to help you focus on, then, then just see if you can keep a tally of how many different groups are mentioned. I'll read Nehemiah 2, verses 17 to 18, and then chapter 3. Bear with me on the pronunciation. Chapter 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start building. So they began this good work. Chapter 3 Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah, they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabal, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Joyada, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Besodeah. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Merinoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Hahiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall, Raphael, son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Haramath, made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hashabniah, made repairs next to him. Malchijah, son of Harim, and Hashab, son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section, and the Tower of the Ovens. Shalom, son of Halahesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanan and the residents of Zenoa. They rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Malchijah son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth Hakaran. He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalon son of Kolhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden, as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of a half-district of Bethzur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kyla, carried out repairs for his district. And next to him, the repairs were made by their fellow Levites under Binui, son of Hanadad, ruler of the other half district of Kyla. 
Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabbai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashab, the high priest. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired another section from the entrance of Eliashab's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house, and next to them, Azariah, son of Maser, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Binui, son of Henadad, repaired another section, from Azariah's house to the angle and the corner, and Palel, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle in a tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Padiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel, made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate towards the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting wall to the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to him, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshalem, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants, opposite the inspection gate, and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. Thank you. So, it's an odd passage. It's a long list. There's plenty of difficult names, most of which don't turn up anywhere else in Scripture. So, it's a bit odd to have them detailed here. And it traces this loop around the walls of Jerusalem, just saying who built which bit of wall. So, a question. What does it look like when God is building his kingdom, when he's using his people to re-establish his blessings. I've got five particular reflections. Um, The first is this. It starts with the priests and the temple. Um, Think about why they're building. It might seem strangely topical, given current politics, that we, we get this leader coming to power and dedicating himself to building walls. But, but this is not, I think, primarily about nationalism and protection. It will serve a defensive purpose. It will help to keep Nehemiah's enemies off his back later in the book. But as a defensive strategy, actually building this wall is surprisingly risky. The next few chapters detail some of the opposition they face. And one of their opponent's tactics is to threaten to report this wall building as an attempt to break away from their Persian overlords. That could easily have been the way it was perceived. And that would have risked a punitive military action, which they would probably not have survived. Building a wall when you're in occupied territory is dangerous, and frankly it's of limited military value. It it will give them some local security against small armed forces, but even the original walls of Jerusalem didn't keep them safe from invasion. They they know that well. And in fact, 
Later history shows that this Jerusalem, with its new walls, never really stood again as an independent power, certainly not for 400 years or so until the Maccabean Revolt. The walls, they might give some local security to the residents of Jerusalem, but reading over chapter 3, one of the things we'll see is that loads of the work is carried out by people from the wider districts, 10, 15 miles away from Jerusalem. So it's not for their defence. And after all, these guys who've come back from exile, they know well that it's, it's not walls that matter. They know it's the Lord that will defend his people. They know well that it was losing the Lord's defence that spelt Jerusalem's doom before. No, it's not about strength. It's about disgrace. And that's why I started just back in 2 verse 17. Old Testament, Old Covenant Jerusalem was meant to be a glorious city on a hill. It was meant to be the demonstration to the world around of what it looks like when God establishes his people. The city of his temple. The city where his people live secure under his blessings. It was a a visible invitation and promise to the kingdoms around them. It's the joy of the whole earth. And it's in disgrace. It's been torn down. So this project, repairing the wall, is it's an essential step for them in making the statement that God is re-establishing his people. That they've been lifted from disgrace and defeat. It's a, a statement that astoundingly, after all their history, his covenant holds. We might miss that in chapter 3. God isn't name-checked in this list, but Nehemiah writes throughout the book with a clear sense of who's in control. Forwards in in chapter 6, verse 16, as as the wall is completed, he says that this work had been done with the help of God. And these guys, we can imagine, returned from exile with a newly rebuilt temple, a freshly reforged people of God. They'd, They'd be working with the Psalms ringing in their ears. Psalm 127, for example, unless the Lord builds the builders labour in vain. In this list in chapter 3, we just get a subtle sign of that. Fittingly, the the account starts in verse 1 and finishes in verse 32 at the sheep gate. That is, the gate closest to the temple. It gets its name because the sacrificial animals would be led in through there each day. And the work kicks off with Eliashib, the high priest, and with his fellow priests, getting stuck into the labour. It starts and finishes with what is needed for temple worship. The Lord is central to this task. Starts and finishes with priests and temple, but then strikingly it includes everyone. Did anyone count? Any groups in there? Any bids? I think it depends how you classify them. Right? Um, Let me say some of the ones I spotted. In verse 1, you've got the high priest and the other priests. And then you've got men from outside Jerusalem. I think that's really important. There's some from other towns, like Jericho in verse 2, and Gibeon and Mizpah in verse 7, and and some from other regions, like Tekoa in verse 5. That's at least a day's travel away. There's the great and the small. 
So we get regional bigwigs being mentioned, district rulers in Jerusalem and other towns in verse 9 and verses 12 through to 19. But then working alongside and in between them are, are just some normal people working in front of their houses. We get merchants and goldsmiths and perfume makers in verses 8 and 31 to 32. Wealthy folk, not necessarily good at DIY, but they probably had help. There are Levites in verse 17, so people set aside for sacred work. Priests from the surrounding region in verse 22. Temple servants in verse 26. And then guards in verse 29. It's this broad cross-section of society. And then there were some surprises. So, there were women mentioned as being part of the work. Shalom's daughters in verse 12 are unusual for manual work. There's a disgraced line. So in verse 4 and 21 we have Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakkaz. That, that's one of the family lines mentioned in Ezra chapter 1. One of the priestly lines that's disgraced and can't show its genealogy. It was only accepted back into temple service after use of the Urim and Thummim. So there's people there who've lost it all but have then been redeemed and brought back into the fold. That's an ancestral problem but more recently there's a disgraced man. This guy in verse 11, Malchijah's son of Haran. He's one of the people in Ezra chapter 10 who's guilty of intermarriage with the people around them. That was maybe 13 or so years earlier. And he's apparently repented and regained his place as an upstanding citizen. He's contributing to the work. Essentially, the, the list is showing a whole spectrum of Jewish society. It's not, and this is important, it's not just the priests. And nor is it something which is just paid for by the nobles. And nor is it something that is just built by the experts in the labouring class. No. As the Lord gathers his people back together, everyone from top to bottom is involved in the labour. And then, I think really strikingly, is how many names there are in this. It's about individuals. There's so many people named and recognised that actually loads of them have to be distinguished by giving their family name as well. There's this sense that Everyone and his dog is involved in the project. And they're all known. They're all given credit. Awkward. There's this one stain on the account, isn't there? These nobles of Tekoa in verse 5. They would not put their shoulders to the work under the supervisors. But as if to make the point of how unusual that is, that it's the men of Tekoa who are recorded as one of the few groups going on to complete two major areas of the wall in verse 5 and 27. Now, we don't know exactly why those nobles exclude themselves from the task. Apparently, Sakoa borders on the region governed by Gisham, one of the guys we meet in chapter 2. So, so perhaps, it's speculated, perhaps they've been compromised. Perhaps they, they owed some fealty or debt to this enemy of Israel, and so they don't dare to take part. Maybe, maybe more likely, are, are they just too proud? Too posh to push under someone else's authority? 
Yeah, uh, apparently, the, the phrase there, they would not put their shoulders to work, it's meant to be reminiscent of an ox refusing the yoke. So I find myself wondering, what was it like for them afterwards? Were they later filled with shame when they looked on and saw governors and rulers rolling up their sleeves and getting stuck in? Or, or how did they feel when a year later they visited Jerusalem and they saw what had been achieved and knew they had no part in that? Saw what they'd missed? Aside from them though, there's this sense in chapter 3 of a, a vast collaboration. It, it's God's people, it's the whole lot. And they're at work under him, straining towards a, a common goal. It's exciting. It's a vast project, but the next point I, I think is interesting as well. For a lot of them, it starts just outside their front doors. They build where they live. You, you do see rulers of whole districts of Jerusalem who, who take on these big stretches of the wall. And in the ancient world, that's how a lot of public service works get done. A rich person would stump up the cash, they'd build something huge, and it'd be a bit of a monument to their ego. But, but here we've got several characters next to them who, who just take responsibility for the area outside their house. Look at Jediah in verse 10. Or Benjamin, Hashab and Azariah in verse 23. Or the priests in verse 28. And, and others. All building where they live. We don't know how that was organised. We don't know if they volunteered for that or if Nehemiah ordered it, if he had a policy of getting people to take responsibility for the closest segment. But it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Those guys are going to pour their effort into the work. Partly from fear. In the event of a raid, if it's their bit of the wall that fails, it's their house that will be burnt before they, they push the enemy back. But then, also, they're building just outside their house. They know that every day when they walk out of the door, they're going to see their work. They'll see the fruit of it. They'll see the part of God's promise that they built with their own hands. In fact, the labour is the reward. As they get to be part of re-establishing his people. There's a consequence to their actions, isn't there? That is what those poor, foolish nobles, Takara, are missing out on. We don't know. They, they might remain part of the people of God, but they've lost the opportunity to have ownership of what's being established. It put me in mind earlier, 1 Corinthians 3.15, where Paul's talking about the church leaders who have not built well, whose work is tested in the fire and burnt up, and he says, those Christians, they're saved, but it's like people escaping through a fire with nothing to their credit. Some people are reaping the reward of building where they live, where they see the consequences day after day. But importantly, fourth point, I think it, it, it's not a purely local selfish project. Others are, are travelling in from miles away. So, from Jericho and Gibeon and Mizpah and Tekoa and Hassanah and Zanoah and all over the surrounding districts. We find out later on in chapter 6 that the task of rebuilding takes 52 days. 
So people from these rural communities are taking almost two months out of the year, probably in July and August, in a farming economy with summer crops of millet and grapes and olives. That's crazy. They're leaving farms and businesses behind, maybe unattended, maybe looked after by neighbours or relatives or their wives and children. They're leaving family behind. And again, later we find out that they're even having to mortgage land and borrow money to pay taxes when they're not earning, all the while so that they can do this and spend money and effort building a wall around a city where they don't live. What does that say about how highly they value this project? About how much they care about the disgrace that their city has fallen into? About how richly they see the reward, the blessings of their God on his people? Last little reflection I've got on this. Um, I'm not totally sure about this. Make up your own mind. Test it as an idea. But I, I think the work is incomplete. We get little hints of that in here in chapter 3. Now look at the gates of the city. So you've got the sheep gate in verse 1. You've got the fish gate in verse 3. And various others littered through here as they go around the city. And it's inconsistent. Some are described as being rebuilt and having their doors set in place. Some also have bars and bolts completed. Only one has a roof mentioned. That's in verse 15. As we get towards the end of the chapter, they just name the gates. It seems a little patchwork, inconsistent, imperfect. Maybe that's reading too much into it from a few words, but you know, we, we do know that later on, Nehemiah can seal the city off at night. The gates are, are, are done by then. But even so, I think implicit in the text is that the work is not sufficient. Nehemiah is recording this as a historical document. He's well aware that anyone reading it with a smattering of historical knowledge will say, Jerusalem didn't stand free. This was not the start of the new independent kingdom. It remained a provincial town in larger empires for hundreds of years more. So sure, an exciting project was undertaken, and it, it says great things about God's redemption of his people, but ultimately they are still waiting for a greater fulfilment. And even by the end of this book, by the end of Nehemiah, he's still waiting eagerly in chapter 13, Asking God to remember him with favour. For now the work is incomplete. So, five thoughts I've got from this list. You may have more. I, I suppose the, the question that we need to ask is, is, where does it leave us? What do we take from it? And I do want to sound a note of caution. We, we don't want to blithely take parts of this narrative and just chunk it over into our own lives. Don't build a wall. Uh, unlike Old Testament Israel, we're, we're just not called to establish defences in this way. We're, we're not called to be a separate nation. There's no such thing as a Christian country in that sense. And Jesus reframes all of this in the new covenant that we live by. 
So last year in our morning services we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount and, and there in Matthew 5 we get Jesus redefining what it means to be part of his kingdom. What it means to live under his blessings. And rather than saying build a new city he, he tells his disciples blessed are the poor in spirit and the mourners and the meek and those who hunger for righteousness and the, the merciful and the pure in heart and the peacemakers and the persecuted. And he says to them you are the light of the world. You're the city on the hill which everyone can look to. Live such different lives that people see your good deeds and glorify God. That seems to be what it means to to build in the new covenant. So, Nehemiah 3 was then. What will it look like for us now to be part of it as God is building his kingdom here? You know your heart's better than I do. You can challenge yourself better than I can. But maybe some of those ideas have resonated with you. I don't know. Here are a few questions we we can ask ourselves. Andy asked us two weeks ago how much we care. Do we share Nehemiah's concern for God's people? Do we mourn like him? Do we mourn like Jesus did when he looked on Jerusalem and longed to gather the city to him? Does does it drive us to fasting and prayer? And in chapter 3, I think we get the flip side of that question. Will you put your shoulder to the work? We've got this one sour note in the passage. These foolish nobles in verse 5, who for whatever reason, they just won't take the yoke on their shoulders. And who knows, best case scenario, perhaps ultimately they're still part of the people of God at the end of Nehemiah, but but they look around and they don't have the same reward that others do. How badly they would miss out. They've exchanged a moment of pride and lost a reward that even the common labourers around them got. Am I ready to put my shoulder to the yoke? I'd say Churches like ours are often full of very busy people. I don't want to chide you into greater activity. Rest is good. But occasionally it's worth asking ourselves. What are the areas where, honestly, I'm not willing to take up the burden? Where is the cost or the imposition or the embarrassment too great? Are there areas where where I know the need but just don't want to get involved? It might be a a specific ministry that we want to avoid. It it might be that I don't want to commit time or emotional investment in people who will move on fairly soon. It might be something as simple as not really wanting to hang out and talk with that difficult character. Investing in a gospel-based relationship that will be exhaustive. Are there places where I don't want to put my shoulder to the work? It's absolutely not, of course, that if I don't serve, I'm not saved. I cannot, in any case, earn my place in God's kingdom. It's a free gift for me. By the grace of Christ Jesus at the cross for anyone who turns to him. But it's the same grace and generosity of our Lord that gives each of us, not not just the professional ministers, but each of us, 
the whole cross-section of his church get given chances to serve. The privilege of sharing in his work and so sharing in his reward. And so who can say what the outcome of that demeaning task or, or that demanding relationship will be? Are, are you ready to put your shoulder to the work? What would that mean tomorrow? Or this week? If I, if I take up that task I want to avoid. As Jesus put it, if I, if I take up my cross and follow him. Second question, um, where are you building? These guys in chapter 3, they start and finish with the temple gate. It's kind of easy to just do stuff, isn't it? Just be busy. Sometimes there's not enough time to, to stop and do the praying bit, the Bible reading. Where are you building? Where do you start? Are you first of all taking that time to look after your own relationship with Jesus? Do you know him well? Are, are you finding ways to mull over his word? Probably means quiet times, right? Daily, ideally. But it might also be listening to a Bible audio book on your way to work or, or a sermon podcast as you run it. Are you steeping yourself in the Bible? Are you talking to him? How's your prayer life? I, I struggle with this. Are, are we people that, that have that temple gate ready in our hearts, that open door where we go all the time and just say, Lord, help? Where each day we go and we, we give ourselves over as living sacrifices. Because how can I serve if I don't start building there? The second aspect of that, where, where are you building? Are, are there places like the men of Tekoa where you're invited to go 10, 15 miles out of your way? Places which will be efforts, but you might not see the fruit. Sometimes it's just too much work, isn't it? There's that weeknight meeting that you never get to, or, or the office prayer group when you just have too much actual work to get on with. Whether the friend in another town that you could make the effort to see, but what are the costly areas of service for you? What's my attitude towards them? Do I shy away from them? Do I do them grudgingly? Like these guys, do I, do I see a, a joy, a privilege, a, an investment not to be missed? Probably comes down again to that question of how much do I care? for the wider kingdom of God, for his glory. Third aspect of that question, where are you building? What, what would it mean for you to be doing that thing of building outside your front door? Where is it that you would see fruits? The neighbour, the person you share the office with, or, or the ministries that run near you, in, in this building or, or wherever, are you investing close to home in gospel-based, grace-fueled relationships reflecting what we've received? It, sometimes it's easier to do the distant stuff, isn't it? To, to keep things at one remove. But are we sometimes missing the opportunity to see the consequences day in and day out 
because that may all leave you feeling very negative. Last question is really an encouragement. Are you looking forward to a greater promise? Because as, as he's writing this, Nehemiah knows it's not a done deal. We'll see in later chapters, building walls doesn't establish a flawless people, weirdly. And he ends the book still looking forward, saying, remember me, my God. In his time, all of the Old Testament prophecies, prophecies and promises, they're waiting to be fulfilled. He was looking forward to someone who's going to come and do it. And we live in a different world. Jesus has come. He fulfilled the law. He's the perfection of God's promises. He's the city walls and the temple. We, we see so much more than Nehemiah did, but we're still living in the now and not yet, aren't we? So it's, it's painful, but to be a Christian is to be part of the kingdom of God and, and stuff's still incomplete. It's not perfect today, and I'm not expecting it to be. I fail. I'm still flawed. But Jesus has promised that he will return. He will establish his city complete and shining and glorious. And anyone who turns to him and calls on his name has a part in that. And that completed work doesn't need a sheep gate. There'll be no more sacrifice. Because he's guaranteed it all with one perfect sacrifice. It's a done deal. Krishna, are you looking forward with confidence to a greater city than this? Let me read from Revelation 21, where we, we get a glimpse of that city. And then Matthew's going to lead us in responding in song and prayer. Revelation 21, verse 9. One of the seven angels with the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Skip forward to verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. The glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the, na of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, let us fix our eyes on that future city. Let's live in the sure and certain hope of what you have bought for us. 
And so help us now to be faithful builders. Amen.